First Samuel chapter 28. We will finish First Samuel tonight. No, no, we won't. Try to get two chapters. I left off around verse 6 or 7 of chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. The Philistines, they have come together. They have gathered together to fight Israel and Achish, one of, of, one of the five lords of the Philistines, has told David that he would be joining him in the fight and against his own brethren. So that's, that's, that's a tough position there. Remember, Samuel has died, and Saul is nervous about going to this battle against the Philistines because Jehovah has turned away from speaking to Saul because of Saul's time and time again rebellion against the Lord. So he says in verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, the King James says a necromancer, one who evokes the dead, supposedly, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Uh, the latter part of verse 3 tells us Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. But since the Lord has stopped communicating, has stopped speaking to Saul, he goes to the occult. And it says, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Endor was located between the hills of Mora and Mount Tabor in the Jezreel Valley. And when I was a new believer reading this passage, I'll never forget, I automatically thought when I saw the name Endor, of bewitched because I grew up in that era. Uh, Samantha Stevens, she was a, you might say if there's a such thing as a white witch. But one thing I remember about Samantha is that her mom, Endora was her name. And she would always put spells on Samantha's husband, Darren. And even back then, that shows the cunningness and the craftiness of Satan. And the reason I bring this up is uh, Anthony, when he came to visit, I think he went to a movie, and we had the privilege to keep Sage, his daughter. And we were trying to entertain her and all these things, but it was a movie that she wanted to see. And I think we saw that movie over and over again, and then I finally started watching the movie. I said, hmm, something's going on fishy with this movie. But the name of the movie was Moana. And what blew me away about this movie, I stopped cleaning as I saw the ocean being parted, and Moana is walking just like Cecil B. DeMille, Ten Commandments, the, the river is parted, the Red Sea is parted, and she's walking through it, going to this island, which has became a woman. Her name is Tafiti. Uh, also called Mother Island. And so when she gets there, it was another demagogue. His name was Maui, I think, and played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, anyway. But at the end of the movie, Tafiti is holding Maui and Moana 
in her hands, huge woman, and they repent of doing the things they had did because at that time all creation was ruined and she had lost the emerald heart. She owned the emerald heart. And Moana brought the heart back, gave it to her. Uh, they repented of whatever they had did and everything becomes lush and green again. And then she turns into this mountain. And once again, that reminded me, that's nothing but indoctrination. Even as a child, even in the 1970s when I was watching Bewitched, that was what was happening then. That's what happens now. And we have to be careful about those things because Satan is very cunning. And he says in verse 8, so Saul disguised himself. I don't know if he put on makeup or something also, but it says, and put on other clothes. And he went in, and the two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me. Uh, the King James says, please divine for me. And anytime I think of the name, the word divine, that's God, divinity. And this is what this witch was presenting to do. Please conduct the seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. He probably disguised himself because he did not want this woman to know it was himself because, once again, all of the witches and all of the mediums were supposed to be out of the land of Israel at this time. Then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And notice how he swears by Israel's, Israel's God here to say, no, I'm not going to do this. He says in verse 10, and Saul swore to her by the Lord saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So this is just another sign of the hardened heart, the hardened spiritual condition of Saul's heart. In order for Saul to get her to divine for him, he makes a promise, he makes a vow to protect her from the condemnation that God had already put against her. So he says in verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. At this time, Saul is very desperate. And we see it today in people's life. They don't know the Lord. They don't want to know the Lord. But if they know you are a believer, the first thing they will say when the bottom falls out, would you pray for me? Would you, next time you pray, would you talk to the Lord for me? That's exactly what Saul is doing here because the Lord has turned away from him. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? So it must have been by her facial expression or her body language must have given her away. It says, And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. Now, this is ironic that Saul knows and believes the truth. The salvation can only come from God, the God whom he has hardened his heart against. 
So he's thinking, if God will not speak to me, I will get someone to raise up someone that he will speak to. That's his idea. That's how he's registering things here. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. He knew right away that was Samuel. The question theologians, the questions that commentators, the question that you and I ask all the time, did this witch really call the spirit of Samuel up from the grave? That's the question. Now, a popular view of the early church was that the witch had summoned Satan to appear in the form of Samuel. Tertullian said this, God forbid we should believe that any soul, much less a prophet, could be called forth by a demon. Amen to that. Martin Luther said, who could believe that the souls of believers who are in the hand of God and in the bosom of Abraham were under the power of the devil? So the argument is, is this, Samuel, is this truly Samuel and did this witch, was she able to bring him up from the grave. And the problem with what they were thinking back in the first century is that if it's a believer, he should have no or she should have no power over God because God takes care of us not only here, but eternally. So the enemy or no one else can touch us. It says in verse 15, Now Samuel said to Saul, also the summoned spirit also came up with the same message that Samuel had said before he had went into paradise. Look at verse 17 real quick. It says, and the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. So if Satan had appeared to deceive Saul, why would he speak the truth here? Because we know Satan doesn't speak the truth. Then the Spirit uttered a prophecy that did come true, because the latter part of verse 19 tells us, he says, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So does this mean that a servant of Satan actually succeeded in raising the soul of a prophet from the grave? from the eternal care of God? I don't think so. Most commentators, and I'll agree with today, think that even this witch were surprised that God allowed Samuel to be raised to come up from paradise. She was surprised because, remember, she was in shock because she says in verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. So let's read verse 14. So it was God who allowed Samuel to come back from paradise. I'm wondering why Samuel didn't have a glorified body at this time. Jonathan, could you help me out with that? Huh? <laughs> Just give me the give me the short answer. <laughs> I don't think we get a resurrected body till the eternal kingdom. Exactly. That's that's exactly why. He comes if if we go by what it says, and we do, 
that he still had his mantle on, the same things he wore when he walked the earth. And so like Pastor Jonathan said, they don't have their glorified bodies right now. That only happens when Christ resurrects, which he has, and he's gone to heaven. So they're still in paradise at this time. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived, he hasn't seen him, that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. He shows more honor to Samuel here than he ever did when he walked the earth. Now Samuel said to Saul, so he begins to speak, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I wonder did uh, Lazarus say that? Everybody who says once again that your loved ones that are in heaven, they are looking down at you, don't believe it. It's not true because what their eyes are looking at, not only the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, but gazing upon Jesus Christ, they would never look this way again. And so I would have said the same thing. Why are you disturbing me even in paradise here? And Saul answered, I am deeply, I want you to notice when Saul speaks, he speaks for himself. He's about himself. He's selfish. He's always been selfish. And when you are selfish and full of pride, that's when you are closely, the most closely you are in league with the enemy. I'm reminded of the five I wills that Satan said. And then Jesus comes back with his five I wills. Well, Saul has about seven here between I and me. Now, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. It's all about Saul. It's always been about Saul. That was one of his greater, greater downfalls. Verse 16, then Samuel said, so why do you ask me? Seeing the Lord has departed from you, and has become your enemy. Saul is a picture of every person who has spurned the gospel of Jesus Christ, only to arrive at that day, and it will come when a wrathful God is no longer willing to speak grace to you any longer. I know you've shared the gospel with friends and family members before, and I, I, I have some that when I begin to share, they say, I'm good, my life is fine, yet they don't consider when their number is pulled or when God says, okay, I've called you enough that they will never look for the grace of God any longer. It will be too late. That's what's happened to uh, Saul right here. He says in verse 17, and the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. Remember in chapter 15, Saul was commanded to go and kill, wipe out the Amalekites. Men, women, boys, girls, 
animals, everything. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, everything he was supposed to wipe out. But he didn't do that. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Amalek is always a picture, a type of the flesh. He says, therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Romans 13, 14 tells us, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Cut off all ties and all access to what is making you stumble. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying here. If that cell phone is making you stumble, don't get a smartphone. I think they still make those little flip phones that you can put. Get one of those. If the internet is making you stumble, whatever makes you stumble, you should take care of it radically. Because it's in slow, the slow erosion of sin and that temptation that continuously comes your way puts you on a slippery slope. Saul, time and time again, had opportunities to turn to the Lord. Even when God came to him and said, Samuel came to him by the message of God and says, hey, the kingdom is your lineage would have ruled Israel. But now you're not going to have that long-lasting house. If he would have repented right there, okay, I blew it, but I'm still going to heaven. That's the goal. That's the end game. He didn't do that. He considered more about the now than the then, and we should always live for the then. He says in verse 19, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you. That's why we pray for leadership. That's why we should pray for those in leadership, PV, because if we don't, whatever comes our way, if we don't pray, it's usually is going to be splashed up and washed up on us also. It happens here. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistine. When man abandoned God, he desires only that God would leave him alone. But what happens when God says, okay, I'm going to take my hand off of you, you're left alone to judgment and death when he never speaks, when he never calls to you again. And that's what's happening here. Immediately, Saul knows. That's why he does what he does here. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night, And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled, agitated, and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. 
Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. I don't know where you're going, Saul, but you're leaving here. I don't want you at my house. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him, and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. When I read, and they went away that night, it reminded me of Judas Iscariot in the upper room at the last Seder, at the last Passover. And it says, and immediately Judas went out, and it was night. And it's always night when we turn away from the living God. That's what happens here. When sinful man continues to violate and run roughshod over God's law, continuously rebel against the sovereign rule of God, God has no choice. If he's to keep his justice and his sovereignty and his honor, he must come back with the wrath of his holiness. That's what Jesus says in his parable in Luke 19, 27, when he says, a certain man left with each of his servants a minna and said, occupy until I return. And it says, and he went away unto a far country, and then he comes back. And he says, okay, what have you did with what I've given you? And one says, look, Lord, you gave me one minute, and it's accumulated ten. The other guy says, you gave me one minute, and it, it, it accumulated five. God doesn't care about how much, but did you do something? And then the last guy comes up. He says, Lord, here's your one minute. I knew, I knew you were an austere and you're a harsh man, so I took that minnow and wrapped it up in a napkin, and I buried it. And I said all that to say this. This is what he tells them. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. I hope you don't think this is a too harsh of a sentence or a judgment for Saul. Because once again, Saul had ample opportunity to turn to the Lord time and time again. But he spurned the grace of God that comes through the only unique son, Jesus Christ. And when you do that, a holy God has no other options here. Isaiah 55, 6, 7 is a great warning for us all. And it says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So as we come to chapter 29, and I want to remind you that 1 Samuel and the rest of these books, they are historical books of the Bible, and they're just, they just aren't records that we're looking at, but they're theologically and, and, and uh, 
pastorically shaped narratives. They're very important. The Holy Spirit is writing through man, and he's putting everything exact. He's weaving this story together the way he wants it. And the reason I tell you that, let me give you an example. In chapter 27, David seeks salvation from Saul's ill will or malice by turning to the Philistines. In chapter 28, Saul seeks salvation from God's rejection by turning to this witch of Endor. In chapter 29, David is saved from the Philistines. In chapter 31, Saul is destroyed by the Philistines. And my point in these comparisons is not that David is wiser or more virtuous than Saul, even though he is. The point rather is that David's relationship, he has a relationship with the God of grace. And that makes the vital difference there. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? David is saved from his error we're about to look at, while Saul, having turned away from God, will be destroyed in his folly on Mount Gilboa. And so the rest of these chapters in 1 Samuel, in a synopsis, in a, it's, you can summarize the rest of them with this Psalms here. Psalms 118, verse 14 and 18, and this is what it says. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. That's a merciful God. So chapter 29, David is back with the Philistines at Aphek, and that's in the plains of Sharon, about 30 miles to the south. This means that chapter 29 not only shifts the action from Saul to David, but takes us back several days to the Philistines when they were mobilizing to go to war against Israel. Verse 1 tells us, and remember that uh, Achish, one of the lords of the Philistines trusted David so much that he had made David one of his bodyguards. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. Now think back with me. Aphek was where the Philistines camped and where they went to war with the Hophni and Phinehas, remember when they took the Ark of the Covenant, I think in chapter 4, they die there. They get, when they get back, the runner gets back. Eli falls off his rocker because he was a very heavy man. He passes away. All of this is happening at Aphek. And this is preordained whether Saul knows it or not. He's about to go to battle there. David has been chilling with the Philistines for about 16 months. I've got this, Lord. He's not speaking to the Lord. I can handle this, Lord. I'm a wise guy. I can take care of myself. Remember, he's going out and he's raiding the allies of the Philistines. They don't know, especially Achish doesn't know what he's doing. And he comes back, but David is about to be hemmed in. And he's going to have to make a decision. What is he going to do with that? 
And I love the saying because it fits with this, oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. And that's exactly what he's doing here. David at this point is a wayward servant of God because most of the time in the scriptures, people always say that David is a type of Jesus Christ. And well enough, he is in some situations. But here, David is backslidden. He's a wayward servant of God, and he has made a classic mistake here to which all of us are prone to make, and that's to lead a double life with respect to Christ and the world. We vacillate in the world. We vacillate with Christ. We go back and forth, and David has sought a temporal salvation from the Philistines while he sought his eternal salvation from God. And that's hard to do. David, like many today who want to go to heaven and so professes faith in Jesus Christ, but he also wants financial security. So he hoards his money and he religiously looks at the stock market. He wants a satisfying career. So he compromises the integrity in the workplace. He wants pleasure and approval, so he drinks from the trough of sensuality and worldly entertainment. And desiring to be eternally in the kingdom of God, he comes to church on Sunday to pay his respects to Jesus Christ, thinking everything is okay. That's not a good way to live. The problem is the two are not compatible to one another. Those that live in the world and those that live in the arms of Jesus Christ, they're incongruent. It won't match up. It never will. Even though when you try to, even though if you're backslidden, something just isn't right. Second Corinthians Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 tells us, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? In the end, David, like us, could not maintain his allegiance to the Philistines together with their approval and their protection without abandoning the loyalty of God. That's our choice every day as we walk in this world. Matter of fact, David is behaving like Saul, but there's one decisive difference between David and Saul, and it makes all of the difference. The difference was David's relationship with the Lord. He had one, and Saul never did. Saul, when he turned his back, became an apostate. And David, even in his backslidden state, God will chasten him and bring him back to his side. And we have to understand that. The Bible says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. So if he does that for David, he will do that for us. He says in verse 2, And the lords of the Philistines 
passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. I like the uh, English translation. It says this, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, remember, there's five lords. What are these Hebrews doing here? Remember, any time, especially when someone besides a Hebrew says, calls you a Hebrew, they use it as a derogatory term here. And of course, that's what the Philistines are doing here. They just look different. Have you ever been with a bunch of unbelievers, and you're just not comfortable, comfortable there. And someone will come in and, why are, you, why are you here, Vic? You shouldn't be hanging out with us. You're, you're just different. And the reason you're different is because the spirit of the living God is in you. So they notice right away that David and his boys are Hebrews and Achish, what are they doing here? And Achish, he thought that he could explain it away and make everything okay with the other four lords, but it's not going to come out that easy. And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? He's thinking that he's done something very good here. Who has been with me? I don't know how long these days or these years. It's been about 16 months. And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. That was his line. David is with me now. These are nothing but mercenaries. They they work for me now. They're hired guns. I've got everything under control. That's what he's thinking. But the other Philistines, the lords, they're not going for it. And they're very upset at Achish. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow, I like that fellow, I might use that tomorrow, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle. Why? Lest in the battle he become our adversary, very wise thinking there. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master? if not with the heads of these men. Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? The Philistines, Lord, they were irate at what Achish was trying to do here. They were saying, in the battle, and some, and some of the commentators, they think that David is setting them up to do this. But as we read this, I can't agree with them here. You might, I don't. But Achish, his boys are saying, who knows what might happen? As we're fighting, he's in the rear, and he could attack us also. So they assess what's going on. And if they had had a Bible, they could read, and David could have read in the Scriptures why this incompatibility is not working because David is not of the world and the Philistines are. And their proof text would be Genesis 3. The world system 
does not like us. So why do we try to cuddle up with it? Matter of fact, it's a stronger word. The world system hates us. And that's what's happening here. The Lord knows this. David should know this. And so it's not going to work. Matter of fact, as we're going through the book of John, Jesus says this in 1519. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world not only don't like us, it hates us. It hates a backslidden believer. It hates a lukewarm believer. How much more one that loves the Lord and is on fire for the Lord. Then Achish called David and said to him, got some bad news. Surely, as the Lord lives, you have been upright. I wonder what David was thinking when he was saying all these kind words. Most of this text in the 29th chapter, most of it is speaking of Achish just gloating and doting over David. And I bet David is saying, I don't know if he's feeling sad because he's deceiving him or saying, I've got you where I want you. I don't know, but it's not good. But the key is, the most important part is God knows. He might be fooling Achish, but he's not fooling God. And you're going out and you're coming in with me in the army is good in my sight. For to this day, I have found not, not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David has no home. He is trying to live in both worlds, which is hard to do. So he has no home in either one. That's the way it works. Now, you would think that the words that Achish has just presented to him his heart would have been joyous. He would have been saying, I've got to out. Oh, thank you, Lord, for giving me an out because I've, had, I've got myself hemmed in at this time. But he doesn't do that. Verse 8 tells us, so David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you? that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. Some say, say when he says, my Lord the King, he is speaking of Saul, but once again, I don't think so. Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. That must have been what, uh, was it the Apostle Paul when he says, even if an angel of light comes to you, <laughs> that's who you must see here. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to battle. Once again, one of the ironies of this text is half of this text speaks of Achish just pouring it on to David, that David has been so loyal, but we know he hasn't been. How quickly has David forgotten the words of one of his wives? Abigail, when David was going to kill Nabal and every man in that household, 
she came out to him. And he doesn't remember this because it says in 1 Samuel 25, 30 through 31, the beginning of 31, she says, And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, David, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, because it's going to happen, David, that this will be no grief to you. When someone does you wrong, when someone stabs you in the back, we should remember this verse. We don't want to act out in the flesh. We should remember to handle things correctly because when when the dust settles, The way we've acted, we don't want it to be a grief to our testimony about the Lord. That's in a nutshell, that's what she's saying. That this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself because the scripture says vengeance is the Lord. He will do that. So it seems that David really and truly wanted to go to battle against Israel because David's heart was in a bad place. But once again, God did not abandon him. And we should praise God time after time because there's sometimes you might want to say, hey, I'm just going to blow it. And God gives us grace not to. And then we say, thank you, Lord, for your grace. And that's what's exactly what's happening here. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David may have appeared blameless once again. To, to Achish, that he would say he's like an angel of God. But once again, he could not fool the one true God. I'm going to read all of these verses, Psalms 139, 1 through 12, because it speaks of this. For the chief musician, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, consider this. O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? He sees everything. Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me. If only we lived knowing this. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. 
the darkness and the light are both alike to you. And I will close with Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I don't know if Achish ever found out the treachery, the deception David was doing, but God knew. And in the end, it will catch up with David. David will repent from his backsliding. David will come back to the Lord. But once again, he's given the enemies of God a reason to blaspheme his name because of what he's doing here. He, David had, he, he didn't have to do any of these things because God had promised him the kingdom, just like our Savior has promised us a kingdom. All we have to do is continue to abide and remain in him, and he's going to take us home with him. Let's pray. Father, your word is so precious. Your word is truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. You have put your word above your name. And Lord, we thank you for your word that we can come and gather together and and just go through it and learn things and allow your word to cleanse us and get us ready for another walk into this perverse world that we live in. Father, remind us that you are a loving God, that you oversee us for good. And even when we stray, Lord, you are there, but you are calling us back home to be connected to the vine. Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would have a close and intimate walk with you and those that are watching online. Father, I pray that the key ingredient to do those things, once again, is being in your word and being in prayer and not forsaking the gathering together of the brethren if we want a chance to be a strong brother or sister in Christ. So, Father, once again, I pray that you would do a great work at CR, that you would bless us because we are your sons and daughters, Father God, that the word would be prominent here and that we would live selfless lives for your glory. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.